Please pray with me. May the words I speak be those you want spoken. May the words we hear be those you want heard. And may we live in your grace. Amen. The Great Gatsby, written by F. Scott Fitzgerald in 1925, is considered by many as the greatest American novel. The story is meant as a portrayal, a critique, and a counterbalance to the decadence, the decadent lifestyle of the wealthy and famous during the Roaring Twenties. The Great Gatsby is a critique of Western culture and the American dream. It peels back the glittered veneer of success to reveal the hollow, rotting underbelly of class and capital in the early 1920s. It is a message for our time. Jay Gatsby's weekend-long parties were lavish indictments of the whole hard-charging scene that propelled him to sudden, extraordinary, and unscrupulous wealth. And towards the end of the book, Fitzgerald writes that this was a new world, material without being real, where poor ghosts, breathing dreams like air, drifted fortuitously about. The 2013 film version portrayed that decadence in graphic form, and many viewers missed the point of the critique. Rather than resulting in a confronting decline in lavish and decadent lifestyles and a deeper concern for the marginalized of society, there was a dramatic increase in over-the-top Gatsby parties in the culture. And today, Gatsby parties are still a huge phenomenon. Many have ignored the critique or don't even see it. We have such a capacity to miss the point. Or remember the delightful family movie, Finding Nemo. Finding the message of many films can be challenging, but the moral of Finding Nemo seems pretty straightforward. Leave fish in the ocean where they belong. And in the children's movie, the father of a young clownfish treks across the Pacific looking for his son who has been fished out of the deep blue and dumped into an aquarium in a dentist's office. And the movie ends, spoiler alert, with young Nemo finding his way out of the glass prison and back to his home. Pretty simple, right? The movie did well, too, making $936 million worldwide at the box office. And with the success... Ironically, sales of clownfish, which are often taken from the ocean, rose by as much as 40% worldwide. That's right. Fans were so taken with the film's delightful character that they decided to imprison their own Nemos. They not only missed the point, but overtly heard a different message than the one intended. And as one of the writers in the Washington Post commented, it was a It was about not taking Nemo out of the sea, but the opposite happened. Sometimes we just miss the point. And that's how I feel about this gospel passage. It paints a big world picture, and yet it's so easy to miss the point when we get lost in the specific details. Details that entice us with our own agendas or even our own fears. We've used this text to justify exorbitant profits or investments regardless of the means. 
or we use it as a justification for a prosperity gospel that says, if we obey God, God will bless us financially. And if we're not blessed financially, there must be some sin in our lives. We have used it in the past to validate or even justify slavery, or even to justify poor wages in our individual and corporate quest for big profits. And we used it to motivate people to recognize their natural, their natural talents and use them to maximize their potential. Now, talents in this story is not about the God-given gifts, although the passage does talk about something given according to their abilities. But my question is, abilities to do what? And by and large, these emphases, in my estimation, miss the point. But then I need to ask, what is the point? Even the common tendency to make the passage only about the end times or the second coming can push us towards a fearful productivity, a frenzy embodied in the phrase, look busy, Jesus is coming. So who do you identify with in this story? The wealthy landowner who expects his employees to make as much profit as they are able, whether he's around or not, sounds a little self-indulgent. Are you the faithful workers who facilitate the owner's plan to have money working for him instead of working for money? Yes, but that still implies a class-structured society. And we know how Jesus felt about that. Or are you the person who plays it safe and lives in a narrow but safe life and never takes any risks because you're afraid of both success and failure? Perhaps the tragedy of a life never lived. Or are you the person who hears this story from Jesus and is upset that Jesus isn't speaking against slavery? Instead, he's using it as a metaphor for his description of the kingdom. Temptation to see the story through our own political correctness. Or have you translated talent to talent as aptitude or ability into the necessity of us using our God-given talents to the best of our ability? I'm sorry, but talents in this text is a measurement of weight, not giftedness. A talent is a measure of weight. A talent of gold, for example, would be the equivalent of 20 to 30 years' wages. So five talents would be more than most of us even see in a lifetime. Or perhaps this is your favorite fundraising story. It's one of the most commonly used passages when we talk about stewardship this time of the year. The story is often typecast as an annual stewardship pitch. And all of these thoughts may contain minor truisms, but I think all of them miss the point that Jesus is making in this passage. And so what is he getting at? And why, does he doesn't, why, why doesn't he just say what he means directly? The disciples wanted to know that. I want to know that, but no direct answer comes. So typical of Jesus. I think perhaps Jesus speaks in parables and indirect images exactly because he knows that if he speaks directly, people will be tempted to miss the point. 
like the Pharisees who now legalistically will know how to say all the right things, have all the right answers, and yet see no necessity of getting their hands dirty by actually doing something. They avoid actual living and life. Their treasure is hidden in their minds, protecting and displaying their religious image, but it never finds investment in their living. I want to suggest that the focal point, the overriding message of our text, is not about judgment, end time, stewardship, slavery, or any other causes. Our text and the story from last week about the bridesmaids are illustrations of the correct beliefs of the Pharisees on one side contrasted with their hypocrisy on the other. Everything in chapter 24 to 26 is an illustration and a development of Jesus' words about the Pharisees in chapter 23. Stay with me now. In chapter 23, Jesus says, Listen to the Pharisees, the religious leaders. Do whatever they teach and follow it. They speak the truth, but they've missed the point. They don't practice what they preach. Instead, their correct ideas have given them a sense of entitlement and superiority. And so they live on the level of appearances, image, superiority, obeying the letter of the law, yet confronted by Jesus as hypocrites. Their correct thinking has become an ego trip of religious Kardashian display, seeing the limelight, name-dropping, looking holy, getting in the media, doing everything to be seen by others. And it gets worse. They try to make everyone else feel inferior to them by their scrupulosity and moral outrage. And they bind people up. They encourage others to bury their treasure too. And then after that passage follows a list of six woe-to-you statements about the Pharisees, naming them hypocrites five times and then giving examples, calling them blind guides. They miss the point, and they even encourage others to miss the point. So don't follow their example. They have been given the treasure of right thinking, but have buried all sense of right practice or living, walking around with a sense of social and religious entitlement, prideful judging and pointing fingers. And so it seems obvious to me that Jesus is totally focused on this hypocrisy. And that's the succeeding statements about the temple, his tears about Jerusalem, the story of the bridesmaids, and the story of the talents are further expansions of his diatribe against these hypocritical religious leaders. Now hearing this dark, pessimistic, almost apocalyptic outlook from Jesus. The disciples try to bring something positive into the conversation, anything to distract from all this doom and gloom. I get that. Whenever I'm with a person who's on a negative trajectory, I too feel a temptation to speak a balancing positive. Jesus, look at the temple. Isn't it spectacular? It's built to glorify God. Look what humanity is capable of. But Jesus not only pulls the rug out from under their feet, he turns up the volume of gloom and doom 
He's not just bringing light, he's bringing heat. It's all going to crumble, he says. And he knows that because he knows the history of humanity, everything humans create has a shelf life. And it's going to get worse before it gets better. And the rest of the chapter paints what that might look like. I invite you to look around the world today. And most, if not all, of the devastating things Jesus talked about are happening somewhere and will continue to happen. You'd think we'd learn. And so for me, the key to these apocalyptic descriptions is not about how this is going to unfold or of finding specific historical realities to link to each of these pronouncements. For Jesus clearly says about the day and the hour when this is going to happen, nobody knows, so don't focus on it. Don't focus on the when, why, and how. Instead, be faithful. Take life seriously, but hold it lightly in the arms of grace. It's not about distracting, entertaining, or indulging your avoidant instincts or honing your glittering image. It's about the hard work of really living based on your God-given abilities, your calling, and perhaps about your God-given way of giving and receiving love. The bridesmaid story and the story of the talents are further expansions of this reality. All ten of them look like bridesmaids, but only five are actually bridesmaids. The other five just look the part. And to look at the ten, you wouldn't notice the difference until they actually need to act like bridesmaids. The five were exposed for their hypocrisy. They had buried the treasure of what it actually means to be a bridesmaid. And their guilt and shame at this exposure destroyed their capacity to meet and serve the bride and groom, to facilitate the feast. They're in love with their own image rather than filled with loving anticipation of the bridegroom's return. We might even say that they are spiritual but not religious. What they were given as bridesmaids was buried in image instead of imaginative, creative, and invested living. So what might the property, the talents that the master gives to the slaves be about? Might that property be the fruits of the Spirit? Jesus knows he is about to be killed, and the resurrection consequence is the provision of the Comforter, the awareness of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And the investment of the Holy Spirit is spoken about as the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These, I suggest, are the things we are given to invest into our lives. Don't just believe them in theory or put them on as an attracting, to attract attention and praise. These are the measures of faithfulness. Invest them initially in your own life, not just as theories but in practice, and invest them in service to others. The investment will double, triple the gains in your life and in the life of the other. And it is here that we hear those beautiful and humbling words. Well done, my beloved faithful servant. So in anticipation, next week's gospel text draws a practical picture 
of what this looks like. Right thinking by itself doesn't get these things done. And when we only live at that level and bury the doing, it gets buried in our self-righteousness. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. And I was in prison, and you visited me. Amen.